Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Australia on this day. I'm Michael Adams and today we're heading back to Monday the 6th of July 1964. That was the day that 35-year-old Warrant Officer Kevin Conway became the first Australian soldier to be killed in combat in Vietnam. More than 50 years after his death, questions still remain about how he died and why he was denied a Victoria Cross. Kevin Conway was born on the 11th of December 1928 and grew up at Wellington Point, 18 miles east of Brisbane. He left school at age 15, having grown into a handsome young fella with fair hair and hazel eyes. Standing a fraction below 5'7", Kevin had an athletic build and enjoyed cricket, tennis and sailing. Too young to enlist to fight in World War II, Kevin in the mid-1940s worked as a bank clerk, a farmer and a fisherman. In January 1947, Kevin, now 18 years old, enlisted in the 2nd AIF and a year later he was assigned to the 1st Australian War Crimes Section in Hong Kong. After spending 12 months there, he returned to Australia and was discharged in February 1949. He then worked for a couple of years as a painter and labourer for Queensland's Railways before re-enlisting in November 1952. Over the next decade, which included him re-enlisting after six years, Kevin would be steadily promoted and he'd serve with the first RAR in Korea after the 1953 armistice and in 1959 to 1961 in Malaya with the regiment during the anti-communist emergency. By July 1963, Kevin, who was now a sergeant, had his eye on his next promotion to warrant officer and he also had his eye on the next Asian flashpoint, Vietnam. That month, he attended a briefing for officers who were going to serve in the Australian Army Training Team in Vietnam. Under the command of Colonel Ted Sarong, the AATV was Australia's response to the government of South Vietnam asking for security assistance. The first 30 Australian soldiers, known collectively as the Team, had arrived in August 1962. Their job was to train and to advise the South Vietnamese Army under the umbrella of the US Army's military assistance program. And Kevin Conway officially became part of the team in Vietnam when he landed in Saigon on the 15th of November 1963. He got that promotion to temporary warrant officer class 2 one week later, the same day that President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. From Kevin's arrival in Vietnam until February of 1964, he was assigned to the Weapons Committee, a training centre for South Vietnamese soldiers, and for this work he got a glowing letter from a US Army senior advisor. During those first few months he was there, the AATV's scope of operations was changing, and from February 1964, members of the team were now also deployed with US Special Forces teams in counterinsurgency operations. So Kevin's next attachment was with some of these Green Berets at Khe San. 
By mid-1964, team members were officially allowed to be part of combat operations. At the end of June, Kevin was with Special Forces Detachment A726 at Nam Dong, just east of the border with Laos and 32 miles west of the big US base at Da Nang. Nam Dong was important, or was perceived to be important, because it was close to an infiltration route connecting the Ho Chi Minh Trail to Laos and Da Nang. The American Special Forces comprised 12 Green Berets under the command of Captain Roger Donlan. The camp was also the temporary home of Dr. Gerald Hickey, an American anthropologist who'd been studying ethnic groups in Vietnam for the past six years. The 12 American Green Berets, the American Academic and the Seoul Aussie were supported by 60 Nung mercenaries and about 380 Vietnamese soldiers who'd been trained to varying levels of military proficiency. Nam Dong was enclosed by low jungle-covered ridges and, in Captain Roger Donlan's estimation, the base was looking increasingly like a death trap. Even more dangerous than the geography was the fact that many villagers in the area were hostile to the Americans and Captain Donlan suspected that Viet Cong sympathisers had infiltrated his Vietnamese ranks. He was so concerned that he planned to recommend that the special forces withdraw and hand over Nam Dong to the regular South Vietnamese army. On Saturday, the 4th of July, 1964, the American Green Berets had nothing to celebrate because the situation at Nam Dong was looking perilous. That day, out on patrol, Special Forces Sergeant Michael Disser made a disturbing radio report to base. Quote, The villagers are scared, but they won't tell me or my interpreters why. The next day, Sunday the 5th, Australian Kevin Conway, two Green Berets and the anthropologist Gerald Hickey went to visit villagers to investigate complaints that American aircraft had been killing crops with defoliant. While they were out in the boonies, they learned that the chief of a nearby hamlet had been murdered, another chief had been beaten and a third man had been kidnapped. Back at Nam Dong that afternoon, there was a brawl between Vietnamese soldiers that Captain Donlan suspected had been stirred up by Viet Cong agitators. That night, the Green Beret commander ordered his best Vietnamese soldiers to double the outer perimeter guard, while the Nung mercenaries were to triple guard the inner perimeter. Even with all this firepower and all this preparation, everyone was uneasy and some of these tough guy Green Berets openly talked about not living to see the sunrise the following morning. After dark that Sunday, Kevin Conway was on the first guard shift. Around midnight, he was smoking a pipe in a patch of light when Gerald Hickey found him. The anthropologist and the Aussie talked for a while, and Kevin noted that the dogs were restless out in the darkness. Gerald Hickey went to bed, and around 2am, Captain Donlan relieved Kevin Conway, and the Aussie went to the quarters that he shared with several Green Berets to try to get some sleep. Captain Donlan patrolled, checked the Nung positions, and was about to enter the mess at around 2.30am when all hell broke loose as a mortar blew the building to pieces, hurling him to the ground. More mortars and grenades hammered the camp, and tracer bullets lit up the night. The Viet Cong were inside the outer perimeter already. Nam Dung was under attack by some 800 to 900 enemy soldiers. The Viet Cong were better armed than ever and now brandishing AK-47s, mortars and rocket-propelled grenades. 
The Green Berets and their Vietnamese allies were outnumbered and outgunned, and most of the camp's buildings were already ablaze, including the command post where a cache of weapons and ammunition had been kept awaiting transfer. Captain Donlan, Master Sergeant Gabrielle Alamo, other Green Berets and Gerald Hickey tried to get this material out before it exploded and several of these men suffered burns in the process. Then Sergeant Alamo scrambled for Mortar Pit C, where his job, alongside Nung mercenaries, was to fire illumination rounds that would light up the camp so his comrades in arms could see and repel the enemy. Meanwhile, Kevin Conway was out of his bunk and, after checking one of his roomies to make sure he was alright, he headed for his defensive position, also in Mortar Pit C. Not long after, temporary warrant officer Kevin Conway was killed, the first Australian to die in combat in Vietnam. The Battle of Nam Dong raged for another four hours or so. By the time it was over, two Americans had also been killed, including Sergeant Alamo, whose body lay beside Kevin's in Mortar Pit C. Another five Americans had been wounded, including Captain Donlan, who'd received multiple gunshot wounds. 57 Nung and Vietnamese soldiers lay dead, while the Viet Cong had left behind 62 of their dead. Among those enemy KIA were men wearing North Vietnamese regular army uniforms. And Gerald Hickey, who'd survived, would soon personally tell the American commander, Lieutenant General William Westmoreland, that he'd heard North Vietnamese accents amid those shouting orders among the enemy forces. Those discoveries, along with the fact that Nam Dong had been attacked in such big numbers by an enemy that was so well equipped, suggested very hard times ahead in a war that would transition from guerrilla conflict to large-scale battles with a well-organised enemy increasingly supplied and supported by China. Getting back to the early hours of the 6th of July 1964, how had Kevin Conway died? There are two versions. Both can be found in his official military records held at the National Archives of Australia, and both versions were later elaborated upon in newspapers and other publications. The first version of Kevin Conway's death came after AATV Commander Colonel Sarong and the Australian Ambassador visited Nam Dong in the hours after the attack. They inspected Mortar Pit C and spoke to American survivors. A confidential memo then reported Colonel Sarong and the Ambassador's findings. Its third point recorded, quote, Conway's post and defence plan was in charge 60mm mortar with task of providing illumination for defence. He and his US teammate held to their task despite increased VC pressure on their section of perimeter. They continued, though they were eventually brought within effective grenade range. At this stage, they had to choose between defending themselves with personal weapons, thus probably saving their own lives, and continuing to serve the mortar and light the battlefield. They chose the latter and died at their posts. Conway's conduct conformed to the higher standards and traditions of the Australian Army, and the circumstances of his death in close and resolute team association with his American comrade illustrate the best features of our combined action in this theatre. End quote. A subsequent memo from the US Military Command to the AATV said, quote, 
Verbal reports from Special Forces Da Nang indicate Conway was firing mortar from inner perimeter when VC penetrated outer wire and threw grenades into the mortar pit. Conway and US NCO with him were found to be dead when VC were driven back shortly afterwards. Based on this information, Colonel Sarong on the 8th of July spoke to Australian reporter Dennis Warner. This veteran combat journalist and historian also spoke with American Special Forces men who'd been there and survived the battle. His syndicated piece was picked up in the Evening Journal in Wilmington, Delaware, and ran under the headline, quote, Heroic Aussie American Saved Nam Dong Garrison. Dennis Warner wrote, quote, At about 3am on Monday, July 6, Warrant Officer Kevin Conway of Brisbane, Australia and Master Sergeant Alamo of the United States made a decision that cost them their lives but saved the Vietnamese garrison at Nam Dong in the Central Highlands. Dennis Warner explained to his readers that Kevin Conway and Gabrielle Alamo's job had been to fire mortar illumination rounds if there was an attack. He continued, quote, As they ran some 30 yards to their weapon, other Americans saw by the light of a blazing building that the Viet Cong had already broken through the main gates of the compound. Here, Dennis Warner quoted an unnamed American who said, They had to shoot their way into that pit, but they made it. Dennis Warner's article continued, They made it in a very big way, and in the minutes that followed, flare after flare hissed into the sky from their mortar. Instead of making one quick dash into the camp, the VC now had to go to the ground and edge their way in. Their urgent target was the mortar manned by Conway and Alamo. At first the VC tried to knock out the mortar with their mortar fire, scoring one near miss. But still flares continued to light the battlefield, giving the defenders the chance they needed to organise and hold. A VC group with grenades then got the job of demolishing the flare mortar. Here Dennis Warner quoted Colonel Sarong who said, There came the time when the two men had to decide whether to use their individual weapons and attempt to save their own lives or go on firing the mortar and attempt to save the whole garrison. To their everlasting credit, they went on firing the mortar. Australian Captain James Burrows, who prepared the Australian report, had inspected Kevin's body at Nam Dong and wrote, quote, Numerous puncture-type wounds from shrapnel and, in particular, his back and shoulders were badly lacerated. In the left side of his head, above the hairline, was a large wound which had penetrated through the skull. Captain Burrows' report also said this, quote, Indications are that the VC intended to overrun the camp by sheer numbers and continuous bombardment with the object being twofold, to capture all the weapons, ammunition and equipment in the camp and kill or capture the US personnel for a psychological victory. Kevin Conway, Sergeant Alamo, the other Americans and Vietnamese had died preventing what would have been a disastrous setback for the Americans in the Vietnam War. Kevin Conway was interred in Vietnam. His funeral in Saigon was attended by some of his AATV comrades, the Australian Ambassador, Lieutenant General Westmoreland, and Vietnamese politicians and defence representatives. The Vietnamese bestowed two of their country's highest honours on Kevin Conway, the Award of Knight and National Order and the Cross of Gallantry with Palm. But it had soon be decided that, despite Colonel Sarong's recommendation, Kevin Conway wasn't to receive Australia's highest military honour, the Victoria Cross. Why? 
A memo dated 14th of August was sent from the US command to Army headquarters in Canberra. While the Australian official who wrote it was unnamed in the document, there's reason to believe it was Captain Burroughs. Whoever it was wrote, quote, Subsequent investigation of information not available at the time of my initial report reveals circumstances of Conway's gallant death do not quite meet the extremely high standards set for Victoria Cross. U.S. investigation supports recommendation for Alamo of Silver Star, not Medal of Honor. Similar recommendation has been submitted for Conway by U.S. In view of this and Vietnamese awards of Knight and National Order and Cross of Gallantry with Palm, no further recommendation will be made. So that was that. Kevin Conway would not be getting the Victoria Cross or any other Australian Defence Medal for fighting and dying in Vietnam. This decision was based on what US military authorities had found in their court inquest into his death at Nam Dong. This new official narrative differed significantly to what had been reported initially. This report said Kevin Conway died of a, quote, penetrating wound of the head. The wound was the result of a Viet Cong action and was almost certainly made by rifle fire. Death occurred between 2.45 and 4.30. The report continued, quote, at about 02.30 hours, 6 July 64, intense VC mortar fire began falling on the inner perimeter of Camp Nam Dong. The US advisory team, including Conway, awakened and moved to their assigned posts in the two 81mm and two 60mm mortar positions as quickly as possible. Prior to their mortar fire commencing, the enemy troops had penetrated the Vietnamese Strike Forces Company on the eastern side of the camp. As the advisory team moved to their positions, the VC were approaching the front gate and the wire of the inner perimeter on the northeast side. Specialist 4th class Michael Disser was the first of the advisors to reach 50mm mortar position C and he began firing illumination from the mortar assisted by three nuns who were already in the pit. Warrant Officer Conway arrived shortly afterwards. Specialist Dissa states that as Conway came down the steps into the pit, he was shot in the head by Viet Cong rifle fire. He fell to the floor of the pit and remained there. The sequence of events and the timings from now until 0430 hours are difficult to establish with accuracy. The enemy mortar fire continued and grenades were thrown into mortar pit C. The team executive officer, Lieutenant Oleknikak, and Master Sergeant Gabriel R. Alamo joined Dissa. They were all wounded several times by grenade fragments. Conway lay face down in the bottom of the pit and received numerous wounds on his back and legs during this period. He may have already been dead. Captain Donlan arrived, saw how hopeless the situation was, ordered them to withdraw and tried to drag Sergeant Alamo free when another mortar hit and killed him and further wounded the captain. End quote. An amended Australian report then noted that Captain Burroughs had made his report without the benefit of Sergeant Diss's evidence. In several places in these reports on Kevin Conway's death, notes are made that Sergeant Diss's statement is attached. And while other Green Beret statements are attached, Sergeant Diss's is not, so there's only the official paraphrasing of his account that we've already heard. The only other person who'd seen what happened to Kevin Conway was a Nung mercenary who'd survived in Mortarpit C. Despite these soldiers being highly reliable and respected, this man's account wasn't included at all because, per the US court findings, quote, 
He is wounded in the Vietnamese Army Hospital, Da Nang. He was interviewed through an interpreter, but is of such low intelligence that his answers are unreliable. He would have signed anything. As his story appeared to cover ground already included in statements by Captain Donlan and Specialist Dissa, no statement was taken. However, Sergeant Dissa's account can be found, although second-hand, in Captain Donlan's lengthy 1965 Saturday Evening Post article titled The Battle for Nam Dong. In this version of events, Sergeant Dissa had gotten to the mortar pit and, firing an illumination round, he saw the most frightening vision of his life, hundreds of Viet Cong approaching. Donlan's article read, quote, Kneeling by his mortar and firing into the attackers as fast as he could, Mike suddenly became aware that someone was coming into his pit. He glanced over his shoulder and saw Australian Warrant Officer Kevin Conway walking, not running, but walking down the concrete steps with a calm half-smile undoubtedly intended to cheer up young Dissa. Suddenly, Conway pitched headlong down the steps. He rolled over and Mike saw the wound. It was neat and round, smaller than a dime, almost exactly between the eyes. Conway was unconscious but alive. He moaned with each shallow breath. By this time, however, Dissa had already received help. Team Sergeant Alamo, painfully burned and smudged with soot from the collapsing command post, had dashed to Mike's mortar pit through a hail of grenade and small arms fire. End quote. Then, according to Captain Donlan's article, as relayed by Sergeant Dissa, Lieutenant J. Aleknikak arrived and he bandaged Kevin Conway, using his jacket as a pillow and covered him with a poncho. Quote, a half hour after he was hit, Conway quietly died. I can't really make sense of this version for a number of reasons. The official US report said that Kevin Conway had gotten to the mortar pit as quickly as possible after the attack began. Captain Donlan put the attack starting at 2.26, while other Special Forces men said it was about 2.30. Yet Sergeant Diss's version has Kevin Conway arriving at 2.45am, between 15 and 20 minutes after the first Viet Cong mortars smashed into the camp and set it ablaze. Why would Kevin Conway have delayed? Sergeant Diss's account also describes a bullet hitting him between the eyes. Yet... As we've heard, Australian Army Captain James Burrows inspected the body and said the fatal penetrating wound was above the hairline on the left side of Kevin's head. The official US version said Kevin lay down in the pit and received more wounds in his back and his legs. And this seems confirmed by Captain Burrows' report on lacerations to these parts of his body. Yet Sergeant Dissa's later account has Kevin Conway on his back and being tended to by Lieutenant Alejnikak. Sergeant Dissa's version said Kevin was alive and moaning for 30 minutes before he died. Yet Captain Donlan also wrote that when he got to the pit much later, Sergeant Dissa had said to him, quote, Conway's hit and Alamo's hit. Conway's hit bad. Hit bad. Not dead. And as for Kevin walking, not running, but walking to the pit with that half-smile on his face? The idea of an unflappable, devil-may-care Aussie is a romantic one. 
But it's difficult to believe that Kevin Conway, a veteran soldier with a dozen years service, including in Korea and Malaya, was simply ambling along with a grin 20 minutes into a battle where the air was filled with bullets and mortar and grenade fragments. Like Sergeant Disser and everyone else that night, Kevin would have been able to see what the illumination rounds had shown, that hundreds of Viet Cong were surging towards the camp. So, how to account for these wildly different versions? I can't, though there are numerous possibilities. One is that Colonel Sarong and the Australian ambassador simply got incorrect information initially and released it prematurely because it was a good patriotic story and dovetailed with what they wanted to believe. But the initial US version also tallied with what they'd said. And, as we've heard, the later versions contain descriptive inconsistencies and, frankly, baffling alleged behaviour from Kevin Conway. But maybe Sergeant Diss's chronology was roughly correct, and he turned in the heat of the moment to see Kevin Conway already shot and staggering rather than walking, his expression a death rictus rather than a smile. After all, Sergeant Disser had just seen the most terrifying sight of his life, was afraid he was about to be slaughtered and was viewing everything via flare illumination in the middle of the night. The fog of war obscures and reveals events in many ways. Yet, even allowing for Sergeant Disser misremembering, the discrepancies here are so great that something else other than faulty recall might also be at play. Maybe it had to do with the question of medals, and please remember that that was how it was posited in the August 14 memo. As it turned out, Captain Donlan would receive the Medal of Honor, and he was the first American recipient of the Vietnam War. There was no doubt that Captain Donlan had been hugely courageous, at one point shooting down two Viet Cong charging into the camp, and he also suffered terrible injuries, including when trying to drag Master Sergeant Gabriel Alamo to safety. Yet this man, Sergeant Alamo, was only to posthumously receive the Silver Star. That was even though, by all accounts, Sergeant Alamo had manned the mortar to the last, despite severe wounds, to save his brothers-in-arms. Colonel Sarong had wanted Kevin Conway to receive the Victoria Cross, Australia's highest military honour. Yet, if Kevin Conway was awarded the VC, would it have seemed out of whack that American Master Sergeant Gabrielle Alamo, whose body had lain beside his in the mortar pit, wasn't also honoured at the highest level? Given there hadn't yet been a Medal of Honour awarded for valour in Vietnam, did the American powers that be decide that only one man could get it, and that would be the live hero who might inspire new recruits, and whose gallantry might be recounted in the pages of the Saturday Evening Post? And did that then mean that Kevin Conway's gallantry needed to be downplayed to justify this decision? Again, I don't know. As a side note though, the Battle of Nam Dong was recreated in a 1965 novel by Robin Moore which was called The Green Berets. While fictionalised, it was clearly based on Captain Donlan and Sergeant Disser's accounts and it did include the scene with the grinning Aussie being shot in the head. That book then became the basis for John Wayne's notorious 1968 pro-war propaganda film, The Green Berets. Will we ever know the truth about Kevin Conway's death? 
There might be more answers in his military records because 22 folios dating from 1978 to 1999 are still exempt from public release, that decision having been made in 2008. Though he died on this day in 1964, Kevin Conway's journey home wouldn't be complete for over five decades. He was originally interred in a mausoleum in Saigon. Then, in November 1964, Kevin's body was moved to Ulu Pandan Cemetery in Singapore. Colonel Sarong wrote to Kevin's family to explain, and this letter from a world-renowned jungle warfare expert hints even then at his fears that the war wasn't going to go the way the Americans wanted it to. Quote, We talked this over among the men of AATV, Kevin's mates, and we were all agreed that, with things as they are here, we could not be certain that his grave would always be secure and respected. And so we have made this change. I feel sure you and your wife will understand and approve. In 1975, though, Ulu Pandan was resumed by the Singaporean government and Kevin was exhumed and buried again, this time at Kranji Military Cemetery. That's where he'd stay until June 2016, 52 years after he died, when thanks to the efforts of his niece, Kathy Woodford, Kevin Conway was finally brought home, given a military funeral and buried in Cleveland Cemetery in Redland in Queensland. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Australia on This Day. Make sure you're subscribed to get every episode as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're after more tales from our fascinating history, check out my other show, Forgotten Australia. This podcast was produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. Thanks for listening and catch you tomorrow. 